Uh, I am the church planner that's going over to Crimley. My name is Moose, as David said. That's not my real name. I was just born with a big head. Um, but me and my wife, and we have a son and a daughter on the way, we're going to head over to Crimling late spring to go plant Valley Life Crimling, Lord willing. Yeah, we're really excited. So I am so excited to be able to come up and talk with you about the book of Nahum today, which is another book in the Minor Prophets. Um, before we really start diving in, I just want to ask you a question, something to kind of dwell on as I get into the context. When you think of the characteristics of God, you know, his love, his mercy, all those characteristics, what is the most comforting and terrifying characteristic of God? Just be kind of mulling over that as we dive in. So give you a little context before we dive into the word. The book of Nahum is, of course, in the Minor Prophets. Um, fun fact, in the Hebrew Bible, it was all one book, the Minor Prophets. It was called the Book of the Twelve, which just sounds really epic. Um, so the book of Nahum, it is three chapters, very short, good afternoon read. Um, it was written by a man named Nahum. He is from a little city called Elkosh which is believed to be a small town in Judea, but some scholars think it might be around Capernaum. Um, I know that you don't have your map on you, so those are just words. Um, it was likely written in the mid-7th century, and we have some context clues from the book itself. Nahum mentions the fall of a city called Thebes in Egypt, and the Assyrians had utterly demolished it. And as Nahum is promising judgment on the Assyrians, he says, essentially, you're going to be crushed like the city of Thebes. So we know it's probably not written before that. And then it's probably written either, so Thebes fell in 663 BC. And then the book of Nahum is mainly about Nahum prophesying the fall of the Assyrian Empire with the capital city of Nineveh. And it fell in 612 BC. So we're thinking it's probably in between there. Um, I doubt he prophesied the end of it after it already had ended. So like I said, he it was mainly pronouncing judgments on the Assyrians. So out of all the minor prophets, Nahum was probably the most liked by the Israelites because he never turned it back on them. It was all about your enemy is going to be destroyed by God. So all good news for the Israelites. Um, like I said it consists of three chapters. The first chapter, which is what we're going to be spending most of our time with. Um, if you want to use the Bible app, you can get there. If you're turning there in a physical copy, it's going to be the crispier pages. Um, I stole that joke from Dustin from last week. Um, so the first chapter, it begins with God's character. And then it goes into more general calls of judgment. And then the last two chapters are very specific for the Assyrian Empire and its capital city of Nineveh. And then also some, some judgments to the ruler of Assyria, Sennacherib, which snack, I always think Sennacherib, so sorry I put that on y'all. Um, so now that we have a better idea of the context, we're just going to dive into the first chapter. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the entirety of the chapter we're going to start by looking at the forest, and then we're going to slowly start looking at some trees. So without further ado, it'll be up on the screen, or you can follow along in um, your Bible, and I'll just read it. 
So, chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of visions of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces. By him, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. It's interesting in this section, you're going to see a lot of yous. And it's switching back and forth between the Assyrians and the uh, Israelites, the kingdom of Judah mainly. So in this section I just read, it's more toward the Assyrians. So, you know, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are entangled thorns like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dry. For you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Then we're going to see a switch. Thus says the Lord, Though they are full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, talking about Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. And then we're going to see you switch back to Syria. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. And then we switch back, finally, to Judah. Behold upon the mountain the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So as we read through that, have you got some guesses on what that characteristic may be. It's never explicitly said, but as we walk through this, we're seeing God's justice playing out. This characteristic of God that one is comforting, but one is oh so terrifying. And as we walk through scripture, we'll see why. So let's just walk through some of the highlights of this chapter, starting in verse two and three. Let's look at that again. So I'll reread it. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an Avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. You may kind of recognize this. This little passage seems a little familiar if any of you have read the Old Testament. This description of God is 
in Exodus 34.6 and in Numbers 14.18. Now, they're slightly different, but the same concept is there. God is jealous. He is full of wrath, but he's slow to anger. Um, he will destroy his adversaries. This establishment of who God is, it's, it's at the beginning of Nahum because we see before Nahum gets into the judgments of Assyria, he wants to establish the character of the God who's performing those judgments. You see, God never acts outside of his character. And so Nahum is establishing the baseline of this is why God is doing this. This is why God is acting in this way, because this is who he is. It's, it's the foundation of all the judgments that he has proclaimed throughout this book. And then throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this return to this is who God is, this is what he's doing. You'll see that a lot in the Old Testament. So, he never acts outside of his judgment. We're going to skip down to verse 6. This, the section 4 and 5 are really just displaying the power of God over nature, his dominion over nature, and we're going to jump down to 6. And you used to have in both hands. So, in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. See, this is coming off the heels of that speaking of his power over all of nature, all of all creation. And this rhetorical question gives us insight into man's relationship to God. We see the piping hot wrath of God being poured out on all of those who are deserving. And man has no recourse here. Who can stand before the anger of the Lord? They are utterly broken. There's no hope for the Assyrians here in the sense that they have sinned against God and there's wrath coming. Now hold on, there's going to be some good. Because look at this next verse. It's, it's so interesting. I love verses like this in Scripture because it, it gives you a little bit of whiplash. So verse 7, we're coming right off of God pouring out his wrath like fire. And look, look what you see. The Lord is good. Doesn't that kind of give you a little bit of whiplash? A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows who takes refuge in him. And, you know, when we first think of God pouring out his wrath, destroying his enemies, how many of you are like, man, God's good? Right? That's your first thought. He's, he's so good. No, but we, we see this gives us an insight into the character of God and the character of his wrath. We see his wrath and his goodness are not mutually exclusive. One informs the other. And we're going to get into that a little bit later, but we see this idea that every characteristic of God is not separate. His love, his goodness, his mercy, his justice are all part of this perfect God that are all happening all at the same time in perfection. He is perfectly good because he is perfectly wrathful, because he's perfectly merciful. And we're going to see that a little bit later. So the remaining of the, the chapter, we're not going to get to go too deep into it, but it switches right back. So we go from destruction, destruction, the Lord is good, and then it jumps right back into destruction. Verse 8, um, all the way down to, let's see, what is it, 12? It's just more destruction, more promises of judgment on the Assyrians. And then we get to a promise in verse 13 
of God restoring the Israelite people, and there in verse 12 as well, that God has brought this upon them, but he said, your punishment is ended. I will end this affliction. I will break these bonds. And then once again, we switch back to a little bit more judgment, and then it ends, verse 15, on a call to hold fast to the people of Judah. Hold fast to the God. Hold fast to your vows. Keep the feast, which what it's saying there is hold to the law. They're in the, within the Old Testament law, there's commands to do these separate feasts. If you've ever heard of Passover, that was a feast. So hold those feasts, and what it's saying is hold fast to the Lord, hold fast to his law and to his commandments. And so that's how it ends with this idea of just hold fast to the Lord. He is a refuge. So let's jump into this idea of God's justice. We've seen these components of God's justice throughout this um, passage, um, and we're going to really focus in on two. We're going to focus on, on the goodness of God and the wrath of God. Man, those go together real well, right? They do. I'm going to convince you of that. So the wrathfulness of God is so intertwined, and it is a result of the goodness of God. You see, as we mentioned how they're so put together, in God's goodness, he seeks out what is right. And in his goodness, he wants what's best for his creation because he loves his creation. He loves each and every one of us. He wants what's best for us. So in his goodness, he wants the best for us. He desires the best for us. What happens when the best doesn't happen when sin enters into the world and people start killing one another and they start oppressing one another and they start turning to other gods and God knows that these other gods are false and will only lead them to destruction. What is the response of a good God? It's anger. It's wrath. The same as as a father, if someone were to hurt my son, I would get pretty mad. Yeah, those are fighting words, right? Like, as a, hopefully a good father, I would want to bow up on somebody if they're hurting my son. And it's, it's very similar to our God. Because he is good and because he is loving, when he sees wrong and he sees sin, it fills him with rage. It fills him with this wrath. And when we think of wrath... I mean, what do we think of? We often think, man, wrath is evil or mean at the very least, right? We don't think of wrath as a good thing. We, we might think of unrighteous wrath, maybe the wrath of a drunk man who gets drunk, he gets mad, and he just wants to fight everything that moves. We think of that kind of wrath when we think of wrath instead of this fatherly wrath, this loving wrath of wanting to protect, wanting to make right what is wrong. We see that this is what the wrath of our God is, a righteous wrath that wants to correct. And this is out of him wanting to correct injustice. And what does it mean to be just? What does justice mean? It's this principle of, once again, same as goodness, of seeking out what is right, what is good, what is holy. And if it is wrong, to administer justice is to make it right, to either administer administer punishment 
to administer something that would make the situation right. The same with someone commits a crime, they have to pay a debt. Either prison, fine, that, that wrong has to be made right in one way or another. And that is the same with our God. He sees wrong and he wants to administer justice and make it right. So this idea of God's wrath, isn't that comforting? Right? It doesn't sound comforting at first, but a God that is not wrathful at the things that are wrong in this world is a God that doesn't care. He's not up in the sky seeing each and every wrong that's being done to each and every one of you. Think throughout your life, every wrong that's been done to you, whatever that may be, God didn't look down at that and say, oh, well, it's a broken world. What are you going to do? No, he stored up wrath at whoever it was that oppressed you, at whoever it was that hurt you, who wronged you. Wrath is being built up, and justice will be administered to that person. So we can take comfort, and justice will come. Um, This idea, I was speaking to someone a long time ago that really had a hard time with the idea of God's forgiveness. Because he says, well, if, if we're forgiven for everything, where's the justice? Where's, where, like, why does that person get to go free after everything they've done? But we know that justice will come. Now, in the manner in which it comes, we'll get to in a little bit, a little bit later. But justice will come, whether it be complete and utter destruction or by means of Christ, which we'll dive in a little bit later. So you can rest in the fact that when you are being wronged, rest in our God because justice comes. Rest in him because he will take care of the situation that you can't. So you can rest in him. But the fact that justice is promised to come, the fact that justice will come no matter what, is comforting, but it's also absolutely terrifying. Because, I don't know about y'all, but I have often found myself in the place of the Assyrians, in the place of the wrongdoer, in the place of the lawbreaker, the oppressor, what have you. I found myself in that place. And that means I deserve justice. I deserve justice, which is absolutely terrifying because I know my God keeps his promises. And each and every one of us is there. Romans 3.23, I mean, it's all throughout Scripture. I'll just give you some snippets. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That All, everybody, we've all done it. David understood this. The king of Israel who wrote a majority of the Psalms understood this. Look at this at Psalm 143.2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. See, David understood this, and he begged God, please don't enter into judgment, because I know what I deserve. Please don't enter into judgment. I know what is coming to me. And deep down, we all know it to be true of ourselves, that we all deserve justice for whatever wrong we've done in our life. And each and every one of us have. You know, it begs the question, we, we find ourselves in the same point, asking the same question as Nahum asked in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before God's wrath? 
Who can stand before and endure the heat of his anger? Because I know I can't. I know that I will be utterly destroyed. And it leaves us at this point of brokenness. And, you know, if I wrapped up the sermon today, I think we'd all go away broken and hopeless. What are we to do? Our, our God is just. What am I to do? Who can, who can? Who can stand before this indignation? And the answer is there's only one who did. There's only one who could. And it's the Bible school, you know, it's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. He's the only one who could stand before the wrath of God being poured out. He, in Revelation, talks about how he drank the cup of wrath. On that cross, Christ withstood all of the wrath for each and every one of us. It was only through him that we could have salvation because he was the only one who didn't deserve justice. He was the only one who lived a perfect life without sinning, without wronging anyone. So he was the only one that, man, he could have went right on to heaven without any judgment coming on him. But what did he do instead? He stood in our place. You see, our understanding of God's justice is paramount for our understanding of the cross. If we don't understand the justice of God, we don't fully understand the mercies of God. I don't know how many of you have heard, hey, Jesus died for you. And you know, someone who didn't grow up in the church, my question was always, why? Why did he have to die? What, what does that matter? And once I was told about how horrific of a death the cross was, it just made me question all the more. Why did he have to die in this manner to, for, to forgive me? Why, you know, what does that mean? But with the understanding of the justice of God, the fact that we stand in the place of the Assyrians and judgment is coming, and Jesus stepped in and said, I will take it. I will take the punishment. I will take the judgment. It makes a little bit more sense because... God acts out of his character. And he is, yes, merciful and loving and just. And if he just let us off scot-free, if he just let us go, say, ah, oh, don't worry about the debt. There's no debt to be paid. Don't worry about it. He wouldn't be a very good judge. He would not be just. In the similar way of, if think of, you know, everyone uses the court analogy, but it's a good one. The idea of, you know, there's a murderer who's on video. He said, you know, you see him kill the guy and he says, hi, my name's blah, 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 and this is my birthday and I killed that guy. And the judge says, ah, you're free. You don't, you don't have to pay any fines or anything. We would say, that's probably not a very good judge because that person's off doing whatever, making, you know, breaking more laws. But he would not be a very good judge. No payment was rendered. No justice was rendered to that man. And it's the same way if, if there's no payment for us, if we're just let off scot-free, he would not be just. You know, there in verse 3, it says this. In verse 3 of Nahum, it says, The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. And then look at this. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And it's interesting in the, the similar passage in Numbers, and I don't have it up, 
talks about how he forgives transgressions, but he will not clear the guilty. And those kind of seem like they contradict, but in the sense of, yes, he does forgive, but he will not clear you scot-free. There has to be a payment rendered. The fee is death. For all have fallen short, and the penalty is death. That is the cost. And Christ stood in our place and paid that debt for us. He stood in our place and took the entirety of God's wrath for all of mankind on that cross. And when you understand just how much we deserve death, and that hard pill to swallow of, it would be good. It would be good for God to punish us. That's a very hard pill to swallow. But in his love and his mercy, he sent his own son to die that death, which makes no sense to me, but I'll take it. <laughs> it helps us understand the depths of his mercy, the depths of his grace. His grace is not cheap. The gift for him was not free to give. He, he gave it all. But thankfully, our God, Jesus being fully man and fully God, took that, died the death, and what happened three days later? He rose from the grave, and that's so important, showing his defeat of death and showing how we will follow if we place our faith in him. We will follow him in his resurrection only through his power and his action and the debt that he paid. We got nothing to do with it. We just cling to him. So understanding the justice of God helps us understand just how much of a price Christ paid. And we still, the deeper and deeper you go, you're like, man, I just realized how little I do know. And that's kind of the case with most of the biblical topics. So we see that our understanding of the cross is so tied up in the justice of God. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it perfectly when speaking of Christ and what he's done for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, talking about Christ, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. He became a curse for us. He bore that on our behalf. It should have been us on that tree. It should have been us on that cross. But he stood in the gap for us. As we think on this, I want to end with one last verse. And it's a verse that was covered last week as we were talking about the mercies of God. And I want to show you just how intertwined they are. So 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Faithful and just to forgive our sins. So yes, he's faithful. Some translations translate that as merciful. But he is faithful, merciful, and just. He did not forsake one of his characteristics to forgive us. No, he was fully faithful, fully just, fully loving. He, was, he never forsook who he was to forgive us. And that's incredibly important because if our God did, what other characteristics would he forsake in the future? Our God is unchanging. Our God is loving and wrathful. 
and good. And we shy away from this topic because it's scary. But it's, it's good to dwell on this. Deuteronomy talks about how our God is a consuming fire. So when you see injustice in this world, that consuming fire will destroy it. And when you see that injustice and you realize that it's you that's committing it, that fire will consume you unless you cling to a son, Jesus. So as we dwell on this, I want you to, if you're a believer, think on verse 15. After all this of who he is, what he's going to do, what did he call the Israelites to do? Hold fast. If you're a believer, hold fast to your vows, to what you've vowed to the Lord, that you would give him your life, that you would surrender everything to him. Hold fast to that when oppression is coming your way. Because the life of a Christian is a life of suffering, and oppression will come your way. Hold fast to him, because he is good and a refuge. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a believer today, you never put your faith in the actions of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You stand in the same place as the Assyrians. That's a terrifying place to be. Because on that day of judgment, you will be standing alone before the creator of the universe who makes the hills and mountains melt. And you'll be asking the same question as Nahum asked. Who can stand this? Who can take this? Because I can't. But today, you can lay your claim to Christ. Hold on to him. What he has done, not what you've done. Put your faith in him. Because he is the king of the universe. He is fully God. He is that consuming fire that will defend you and protect you and stand in the gap. He paid the debt for you. Take hold of it. If you want to do that today, if you want to put your life in the hands of Christ, if you want to surrender everything to him, it's simple. It's not easy because you are giving him everything. You're surrendering your entire life, but it's worth it. It's so much better than whatever you're chasing. Cling to him. If you want to talk to me after service, you want to talk to Dustin or Adam, we would love to talk to you about it. Because it's the most important decision you'll ever make. It's important. God is so merciful. He's given you away. He's given you away through Christ. As if you're a believer, we're going to partake of the table. As you drink of the, the juice and the take of the bread, remember of the blood of Christ shed for you. Remember... The bread is a symbol of his body broken on your behalf. And we're going to sing a song here in a minute that talks about, it says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins. Just gaze upon him. Dwell on what he's done. Behold the Lamb of God. It's only he that can take away sins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for allowing us to dive into your word. Lord, as we dwell on who you are, your character. Please shape us in view of who you are. Lord, we, we just want to cling to the salvation of your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that he is the only way. It's the only path to salvation, the only means of forgiveness. 
So, Lord, if anyone here does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would come and speak and just lay their life in your hands. Lord, it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.